Welcome to First Pitches, where famous founders break down the very first version of their pitch so you can master yours. I'm Lolita Taub, co-founder and general partner at the Community Fund. And I'm Eric Bonn, co-founder and general partner at Hustle Fund. Lolita, ready for some real talk with these founders? Sure, let's do it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Frank Rimmerman is a public accounting firm whose history is closely intertwined with that of Silicon Valley. With humble beginnings similar to so many startups, Frank Rimmerman was formed with a desire to serve the entrepreneurial and venture communities of the Valley, supporting those who think outside the box. This is what the Frank Rimmerman team told us at first pitches. Even we agree accounting work can be boring. That's why we chose to work with some of the most innovative and creative people, people who are changing the world around us every day. Their excitement fuels our passion and determination to grow and serve this special community. Frank Rimmerman is the entrepreneurial CPA firm. Check them out at frankrimmerman.com slash startup services. I'd like to introduce you to a team that every founder should know about. It's GS Futures. GS Futures is a new multi-stage VC fund that launched just this year, investing into teams at early seed all the way through Series D. This team spun off from the GS Group in Korea, a legendary enterprise representing assets in retail, consumer, energy, and much more. GS Futures is actively seeking and investing into great hustlers. Go to their website right now, gsfutures.vc, and tell them what you're up to. I think you'll be excited to partner with them. What is something that our parents all share in common with each other? They love dunking on millennials. Why? Well, for starters, they think millennials are entitled and constantly chasing fulfillment and happiness which ultimately means they never stick to a job for too long. And on today's episode of First Pitches, we're talking with a founder who's also a millennial, but probably the most boring millennial we've ever seen. Because according to his LinkedIn profile, he's only had one job since dropping out of college. That founder is Aaron Levy, CEO of Box, an enterprise file sharing company that he started in college with his three childhood friends and now has a market cap of over $2 billion. He was also voted Inc. Magazine's 2016 Entrepreneur of the Year, and if the whole box thing doesn't work out, he's got a second career as an aspiring comedian on Twitter. Get ready to make enterprise sexy again. Aaron, it's an honor to have you here to share your story, and we were so excited to hear your first pitch. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So we did a bunch of research, uh, me, Lolita, and our producer, Hung, and we saw that when you were in high school, you and your friends had tested over a dozen startup ideas you know, as kids. So can you tell us what the worst idea was that you tried? <laughs> so we did launch a lot of really bad ideas. So it's really important to, to kind of get the, the time period, though, in this. So this is 2002 when basically the internet just completely sucked. And so that's sort of the, the era that we're in. And, and, you know, you used Internet Explorer and maybe you were lucky and you had a cable uh, modem, but mostly it was just dial-up. And uh, so kind of late 90s, early 2000s, uh, we would just try lots of different startup projects. One idea that we had, which is kind of fun, if you go to archive.org, you can, you can kind of have fun with it. <laughs> I actually 
I probably shouldn't remind anybody to do that, but um, we had this company <laughs> called Zizap, Z-I-Z-A-P.com. And it was a search engine that we sort of claimed was the fastest search engine on the internet. And that was completely true, actually, up until it indexed about a thousand web pages. And then after about a thousand web pages, it rapidly became the slowest search engine on the internet. So, and very quickly, as always happens on the internet, um, within about a week of launching this thing, it got overrun by effectively at the time spam, which were like online gambling websites, like all these, like, and so basically you would search for like, you know, a restaurant in Seattle and it would be like online gambling restaurants. In Seattle. <laughs> so, so the, the system was gamed very quickly by uh, internet hucksters and it became a very slow uh, search engine, but that was fun. And I, uh, I did that with one of our uh, eventual co-founders of Box along with a bunch of other uh, kind of random internet projects in that uh, in that time period. Aaron, you know, with today's early stage founders, as they're getting started and looking at going from one idea to the next, what was that kind of evolution of, of knowing when to start and stop a project and move on to something different versus pivoting? Again, this is sort of high school period. So there almost was never like a stop or a start. It almost was just like a continuous flow of bad ideas. Um, so <laughs> it wasn't like today where you, you know, officially commemorate that like you have a startup and then you do the startup and then it fails and you pivot. This was just literally like, okay, it's Friday night. What startup should we start? And then by Sunday, you're like, that one sucked. So let's try again. And we did that for a couple of years throughout high school. And I think it was really ultimately the litmus test was, does anybody on the internet care at all? And a couple of the websites uh, that we did, people cared about. I, you know, again, a couple of people used the search engine. We had some other uh, random ideas over the years that if in that time frame that people, you know, would sign up for, but they didn't make any money, didn't really work. And so then we sort of moved on from them pretty quickly. But I think ultimately it's at least that stage of startup development. It was much more of just a continuous flow of, of random brainstorms turning into software as quickly as possible. So our producer Hung is super good at stalking. And we learned some pretty interesting facts about some of your co-founders. So it turns out that from our research, we saw that you met your co-founder Dylan or early founder Dylan in middle school, Jeff in fourth grade and Sam in 10th grade. Wow, you folks are really good. Um, this, this is incredible. So the, um, <laughs> I would say that's maybe plus or minus one year per person. That's almost perfectly accurate, yeah. Yeah, we're, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, uh, Hong has exceptional stock. He's actually right outside your window right now. Uh, looking, looking. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. Is that in the, in the blue car that I'm looking at? With, uh, with abort, with abort Hung, get out, get out. There's right, uh, weird microphone devices, you know, kind of holding yeah. coming out of the car. So, I mean, here's the dealio. It's just like, you knew these kids when they were kids, you know, your co-founders. How did you, as a team, discover that, like, it would be a good idea to start working together? Because business partnership is so different from friendship and actually is fraught where it produces risk that you can ruin friendships. Was there any intentionality in terms of how you thought about uh, constructing yourselves when you're forming? Well, so... There's sort of two ways to think about it. It's, it's sort of like this specific group of friends and how we came together originally in, in middle school and high school. And then and then sort of how did this end up being the group that eventually years later we started Box with? So two very interrelated questions. But I think in high school, I happened to just, I don't know if it was just totally by chance or through some divine, you know, kind of, you know, circumstance. But eventually I ended up hanging out with people that liked doing random, random things. And we all sort of had our own approach to life and all took on side projects, you know, business projects. 
engineering things. So for whatever reason, my collection of friends, like doing business stuff was just a very natural thing to do in middle school and high school. And so we would try lots of different ideas out. And that was kind of uh, pretty standard for us. Going to college, you know, I kept up very closely with this same group of people as well as, you know, other folks and, and tried other startup ideas, some with this group, some with other people, various things worked, some things didn't work. And then eventually we kind of coalesced around Box in our sophomore and freshman years of college, respectively. Uh, so two of us were one year older and it almost just kind of naturally worked that it was this group that, you know, started working on the, the site together because we had done so much in, in middle school and high school. And so it was a very natural thing to do with this close group of friends, um, sort of build this company. But I guess it's such an unusual thing because it's my friendships have always, you know, there's always been another element of like extra curricular business stuff to the kind of people that I've you know hung out with over the years. And so it, it ended up being this, this pretty natural combination. Wow. Can you actually give us a sense of what the USC days were like then leading up into the formation of Box. I remember seeing a video actually right before this, which by the way, you tried to get the Stanford Graduate School of Business class to clap in sync to Eye of the Tiger. I don't know if you remember this opener. That sounds like something I would have done many years ago. So I don't, uh, I don't put it past. I'm just going to say that the GSB is pretty terrible when it comes to rhythm. And I don't think that would be uh, one of their uh, highlights of, uh, of, of credentials. Yeah, but moving on, uh, we heard that uh, some of like the very interesting state of the world there, like you had 50 megabytes of space or something, like free email. Like, how did this turn into that kind of insight for the formation of Box? So I was um, went to college in 2003, fall of 2003, uh, was a freshman. And so the kind of first couple of years of college, again, same thing, you got to kind of transport yourself to that era of the internet, still Internet Explorer, pretty slow internet, just not a lot of good software. On campus, they gave you an email account. I think it had something like 50 megabytes of email storage space. So, um, and then for whatever reason, there was this very strange policy that where they auto rotated or auto deleted your storage, like every six or 12 months, like, so your attachments would just like disappear. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. So, because like the most scarce commodity on the planet was hard disk space. So, you know, really, really difficult to just communicate and share files um, with anything that was provided by the campus. Equally uh, in 2004, when the idea for Box came around initially, I was doing a, uh, an internship at Paramount Pictures and they were using a legacy software product for collaborating. And it was very obvious that like, even in a corporate environment with, you know, millions and millions of dollars being spent on uh, information technology, it was still really hard to share and communicate. So both in the college environment and the workplace environment, it was becoming increasingly obvious that there was this problem of, as you work for multiple devices, as you want to share with people, as you want to be able to, to access files from anywhere, this was a real problem that existed. And I did some research on the market it became pretty obvious that while some people had tried to attack this problem in the 90s, in the mm -hmm. first dot-com bubble, they had not kept their products current with the current market conditions. And so they weren't offering, you know, improved pricing plans or more storage. The interfaces were very kind of antiquated. Uh, they didn't work on mobile devices. And so you had this amazing moment where a need was increased. You could see that a need was going to be increasing on the horizon. None of the existing incumbents or startups had really caught up to solve the latest you know, uh, problems with the current environment. And you had some underlying technological tailwinds that were, felt very favorable to this idea, which is storage was getting cheaper, internet was getting faster, browsers were getting better. And so you had this kind of culmination of, holy shit, like massive technology tailwinds, massive 
behavior tailwinds where people are going to want to work from more places and more locations and incumbents that are just sort of sleeping on the job and not paying attention to space. When those kind of factors hit you, then that's sort of the right time to strike. And so we got really, really excited about this idea, put it together, you know, very quickly as an initial prototype, and then eventually, you know, started to really kind of formulate it as a real startup. You were starting off with the box idea. Were you working on other projects simultaneously? Because I mean, you just mentioned that you were on a constant basis working with your group of friends on different business ideas. So I'm just wondering, as you're looking at all of these elements in the market going in a particular direction, I'm sure you focused on this because this is a great idea. Were there others that you were pursuing at the same time? Yeah, definitely. I definitely was juggling a couple other ideas at the time. So one idea that was out there was uh, I had this website for uh, live events and entertainment and like concerts and stuff in the Southern California area, which to me, I sort of see as like a rite of passage in college, which is like every web entrepreneur eventually creates a website that tells you like what events are going on in college. Um, yeah. That's sort of just a standard thing that I think everybody has to build at some point. I, think that did, their, I did that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for their campus. I don't know why that it's always like the least likely people to actually go to those events end up building the websites for those events. <laughs> and, and so I don't know what it is about <laughs> college that, uh, that caused you to drive that. But so built that kind of website actually got some good traffic and we had some sponsorships and it was sort of paying for itself, but you could just tell that that wasn't going to become a real business. Did some brainstorms actually with, uh, some folks on campus, uh, USC has a big engineering school, so would would host mm-hmm. brainstorms of various ideas. And like one idea that we were pursuing that we didn't get any anywhere past the kind of business planning fa- uh, stage was, if you recall, basically before any modern technology that we currently have, everybody was really excited about RFID, which were these sort of chips to be able to track um, the movement of things. So we had this idea of like, well, what if we build an RFID business where you could like sell it to supermarkets and then you track like where the cart was going to go and like what things people were shopping for. And again, it was like, it was like totally academic in nature because I'd never been to a supermarket and like, I don't know what data you would sell back to the supermarket, (laughs) but it just seemed like, okay, where do you have moving objects that people want data from? So lots of things like that, that just never took off or made any sense. And then eventually I got the idea for box. And so I had to wind down a couple of the projects while ramping up the idea for box basically at the same time. And how did Box beat out all the other ones? Was it just natural, like, okay, those businesses are don't have as much of potential as, as Box and we're just going to funnel all of our energy into this project? I probably have like undiagnosed ADD. And so the, the reality is there's something where like, it just basically felt like a better idea than what I was working on. It was just like, all right, let's move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And so, so it was just totally impulsive of like, once you saw something that felt like it was going to be a bigger opportunity, it was very easy to just be like, okay, I'm going to wind down the stuff that is not as exciting. We saw from a tweet that you wrote on July 18th, 2020, that uh, in your words, in Box's first angel round, we raised $80,000. Sub $25,000 checks goes a long way. And this is actually the first time that uh, I think a lot of the public heard about this aspect of Box's history, because we've all are kind of familiar with the Mark Cuban story. And we do want to talk about that, too. But tell us a little bit more about more color around this $80,000 round that you put together. And after that, Lolita, I'd love to hear the pitch, right? (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, well, I'll just again, because I think the point of this conversation is all of those early age moments. So I'll just take you back to it's sort of January, February time, March maybe of 2005. And we had just launched this initial version of Box. It was called Box.net at the time. And people could start to sign up for it. And I had 
convinced initially Dylan to sort of join Dylan now our CFO, but but Dylan to join and, and help help me build this thing up. He gave initial set of funding and it was something like maybe on the order of ten, fifteen thousand dollars. And that was actually like the first real funding of the business. And that helped us with like things like search engine marketing, helps pay for some of the initial developers that, that helped us with it, uh, server bill, that kind of stuff. And then in the summer, we decided to focus 100% on Box. And so we, we lived and worked out of his, basically his up, upstairs at his parents' house all summer. And throughout the summer in Seattle, we tried to raise, you know, what we felt like was a very credible, you know, probably to us, it was like, it felt like an institutional round of funding. I think we wanted to raise a hundred thousand dollars or something. And it was like, Oh my God, this is the big leaps. So, you know, cause when you go from self-funding and I had put in maybe $10 and he put in 10 or 15. And, and when you cobble together that hundred thousand dollars, like, Holy shit, like this, we're, we're now real primetime, you know, business. And we just got rejected from everybody. So we try and take meetings with VCs. And in a couple of cases, we got stood up by the VC. They didn't show up. There was one point where we actually sent a fax, literally a fax, <laughs> to, Bill, to Bill Gates' office. So for whatever reason, like the primary public contact information Bill Gates had at the time was a fax machine. So we faxed him a prospectus. I'm positive it just went into a shredder. Like the fax machine was probably just connected <laughs> to the shredder. Uh, we dropped off a uh, prospectus at Paul Allen's house, the co-founder of Microsoft. And, you know, also I'm sure that security put us on a, on a wall after that. We pitched anybody who had more than like $100,000 to spare in Seattle. I promise you we pitched them in 2005. And for whatever reason, um, after being rejected from everybody, we did People, a small group of investors led by one individual who ran up a couple of his buddies for whatever reason, I guess maybe saw us, saw us as like, okay, we just got to like help these kids out. Like we know we're going to lose this money, but just let's just give them a shot. And, you know, maybe it was like kind of paying it forward. And so we got this group of four investors that each put in $20,000 each. And these are very, you know, sophisticated business people. They rounded up $20,000 each. So we raised $80,000. I don't remember the exact terms. It was either at like a $300,000 valuation. It was something about either a quarter of the company, roughly, we, we sold around around that post money. And that was the first round. And we, we got it done and it was incredibly exciting. It felt like, oh my God, we made it, like we're rich. And um, <laughs> we had a company that was worth $300,000. This was the first business ever that I had officially had incorporated. And there, there's this feel, there's this moment of like, when you see the documents of the articles of incorporation where like, oh my God, this is like a real business. And then this was probably the next big moment of getting an investor check from somebody that is like not a family member. That also was like the next big moment. And so that was the, that was how we, we got our first 80,000 in the summer of 2005. What an awesome story. And talks about the hustle and the persistence. I think so many underestimated founders in particular find it really hard to raise and constantly say we're getting low nose. But I love your story and thank you for sharing all the nose that you got and that yep. your persistence and stocking really in, in raising those, that first 80K. I'd love to hear your pitch. I mean, if you take us back to your first pitch, what were you pitching to these angel investors? Yeah, so the first pitch was, well, there's only one difference from the pitch back in 2005 from today. And the only difference was we described the business as basically a cloud storage solution for consumers, businesses, small businesses, universities, basically just this idea of storing your files in the cloud securely and accessing their, these files from anywhere. And the only real modification over the years, and, and happy to talk about it uh, if relevant, was just we just decided to pivot so it's exclusively focused on business. But at the time, it was we really didn't distinguish between consumers or businesses. 
businesses. We just said the world needs a place to store files in the cloud, and we're going to provide that that solution on the web, on any device, in a secure way. Um, and basically, the pitch was: uh, so I was a business school undergrad, and so I took a very classic business plan kind of approach to it. So uh, it was a initially a maybe a four or five page PDF which was our prospectus. And um, we literally called it a prospectus, like as if we were going to go like file for an IPO or something. <laughs> and so we had a prospectus and it went through the market opportunity, the team, the revenue model, the what our distribution strategy would be. It was, it was you know, you could pull a template off of Google right now, you know, for business prospectus. And I filled that out basically. And that was our pitch. And, you know, it's funny because I think it's, and I don't know where you folks are uh, in terms of your perspective on this, but like, I know there's a lot of people that are like, ah, oh, never do a written business plan that's cheesy or just show your product or whatever. I'm a big fan of having a business plan because it just makes you, you know, have to think deeply about how you're going to grow, you know, how you're going to get your customers. And, um, and so we wrote out a business plan and in the plan, we kind of talked about what the proceeds of the investment would be going toward. And, you know, we called out that it would be going toward growing customers through online marketing and being able to hire more engineers and, and that kind of stuff. And, but the pitch was really simple. Basically, people would pay us a monthly fee for being able to have advanced capabilities for storing their files in the cloud. And that we would, again, be serving this wide swath of, of customers, consumers to businesses. And we felt like, you know, there were a bunch of market trends. And it was amazing because at the time, the market trends that we called out were people were using Blackberries more. They were, um, we felt like people were going to be working more in like things like cyber cafes. And so you'd want to, you just want to be able to get to your data from more locations in the future. And so God bless like Apple for like actually making like these mega trends be a lot more real. <laughs> um, we talked about how, you know, internet was going to get faster and that this idea of like physical media as your storage technology, like thumb drives and external hard drives made no sense because in the future, you'd want to be working from anywhere. And so you'd want to access your files from any of these locations. And so it's, you know, it's really interesting kind of looking back. It's one of those things where I cannot tell you, I, I literally, I could not quantify how many times the number one thing that people would talk about is, wait a second. So you, a USB thumb drive can just do what you're talking about. Why would anybody ever use this? And like, can you imagine in 2020 people thinking about USB thumb drives as like your storage technology? So that's how much the world has changed. But back at the time, like, what are you talking about? Like, how are you thinking USB thumb drives is supposed to solve this problem? But that was the state of the art back in 2005. So that's what we called out. And, and that was our pitch. And we were still in college at the time. So we didn't really know. We didn't really have a vision of like, well, we had a um, pro forma business plan of like what revenue might look like. And I think it probably got to like five or $10 million, like at like the upper bound of what we could imagine. Um, but we didn't really think about it as like, okay. And then you raise your series A and then you go public, like none of that. It was just like, we need a couple hundred thousand bucks. Here's how we're going to grow. We're going to college. Let us know. It's amazing to me how much you got right back then. I mean, so much of these trends actually turned out to be true as well as like, the special, the nuance, I guess, being that you're not, you're now focused on businesses versus consumer more so, but were there other things that you put in that business plan that you remember that felt totally off, like later on, like 10 years into the business? Well, there are definitely things that I look back on and are very goofy. I saw the prospectus a couple of months ago, was just looking through it again. And like, our, <laughs> like for some reason, we felt like um, business people and investors 
were like born in 1913. And so we would use these unnecessarily fancy words um, to describe <laughs> like, like as if like, you know, the language came right out of like JP Morgan and we're just trying to raise like a hundred thousand dollars. So like, there were like some things where we just totally, you know, were way too trying to play up, just over overcompensate for the fact that we were 20 at the time. But I would say that, and this is not out of some kind of like arrogance or whatever, but like the trends were really easy to spot. Like, you could only imagine the internet was getting faster because you could just watch the ripple effect of like cable internet, you know, going in the consumer world and then eventually faster internet happening corporations. Once you owned a BlackBerry and I, I bought a BlackBerry for some of my other businesses. And once you had a BlackBerry, you're like, oh shit, like obviously you should have a computer in your pocket. Like that's gotta be the future. And then once you have more than one or two devices you're working from, it became pretty obvious that like, you're going to need to store things on the web. So the mega trends were really, really easy. And there was nothing, there was nothing like, we weren't particularly provocative in our sort of understanding of the mm. mega trends. Like there was nothing contrarian about the mega trends. They were just actually extrapolating out early things that we felt like would just only get way bigger. Over time, the only, the, the things that, that became harder were more like, okay, how as a eventually 20 person startup, do you go compete in the enterprise, like those are when actually probably we ha we had to be even more contrarian, which was like, why should a startup be able to go after the enterprise market? And but the initial business plan wasn't particularly clever or or contrarian. It was just these are early trends now; they're only going to get bigger. We're going to ride this wave. So I actually want to ask you about the enterprise being a sexy sale. And I actually got my start in technology selling enterprise solutions. So I get it. I get it, Aaron. But there's a lot of people who are just like B2C is the sexiest, but I think it's B2B. So I'd love to hear how you went from that serving the broader spectrum of customer sets from B2C to B2B to saying, hey, B2B is where it's at. Here's how we're shifting. So we're skipping ahead about two years, but just imagine that we raised another seed round and then a series A, and now we're kind of in 2006. And essentially we were faced with this dilemma, which was we, we had what anybody would consider to be a, a real business, you know, maybe generating a million, $2 million in revenue, all recurring, all online. So, so a fairly efficient business model growing, probably doubling, you know, or, or tripling every year. So like pretty good growth rate, like nobody would complain about this business. But when you looked at the, the market reality and you said, okay, let's sort of extrapolate out by three years or five years or 10 years, do we really think that we're going to be able to compete with Google and Apple and Facebook and at the time Yahoo, when they come into this market and they give away free storage for their consumers because they have other ulterior motives of advertising or they want to sell devices and they're going to give away our product for free. Are we really going to be able to withstand that onslaught uh, from a competitive standpoint? And we looked at that and it looked pretty bleak. And I actually was the last person of the founding team to come around to that conclusion. I think the other founding team members had already kind of eventually built up that perspective. I was probably the last one holding on to, oh, no, no, we have to still have a consumer strategy as a part of what we're doing. But eventually what we did was between a board member and um, one of our initial em employees, Alex, they were really pushing on, hey, we probably need to pivot the strategy and we need to really go after the enterprise market. And the reason for that was we were, at the time, the most you could pay us was like $9.99 a month. And that was the most you could pay us. And if you were an enterprise, you could buy 10 of those accounts um, for your employees or 50 or 100. Nobody really did. So it was just a couple of people. 
And so the most amount of money we could get per customer was like $10 per month. And, you know, you had consumer churn rate. So you're kind of cycling through customers every one to two to three years. And on the consumer side, the features that they wanted were, again, things that we felt like could be very easily commoditized over time because they were just like, hey, I need to back up my computer or share my photos. Conversely, when we went and talked to enterprises and we listened to what they were doing with Box and what they wanted to do with Box, they talked a lot about how, hey, we actually need like these security features or these new collaboration features or these workflow capabilities. And so it felt like there was a really, really wide amount of innovation that you could go and build for the enterprise and get paid for it. And then when we said, you know, how much would you pay for a service like this? They didn't say, you know, $10 or $100 or $1,000. They said tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so we're like, holy shit, like at some point, this is just an IQ test, which is like, do you want to get commoditized <laughs> and disrupted in the consumer space? Or do you want to build a viable business that might be able to build something for the long run? So that forced us to pivot. We were required to pivot to survive. The thing that made the pivot exciting and attractive, which I don't think on its own would have, was that we said, wait a second, what if, what if the way that we actually scale in the enterprise is through more of a consumer-like model, which is we build simple software for the masses, we go viral within their organizations, we do bottoms-up sales motion, and we don't lose our principles of building really, really simple end-user software. Even though our, we're going to get paid uh, by the enterprise, we're really going to be building for the user. And that was the thing that made it work for me in terms of reconciling like, I don't want to go and build some old school enterprise software company where you just say, hey, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, give me all your feature requests, and then you go build them. Mm. That seemed like ultimately just like, I'd rather just, yeah, again, go back to college and, and return to get my degree and, you know, go off and do something different. So it was really this idea of like, what if you could go after the enterprise market with a consumer mentality? That's what made it exciting. And then from that point forward, I kind of got convinced that this was the path of the business. Again, my co-founders had already been convinced of that. And so I was sort of the, just the last, you know, kind of uh, domino to fall. I'd actually like to skip two years later then after this, uh, this moment when this great pivot happened. And I want to quote you. So this is, was, uh, this was some sort of, uh, yeah, it's always good to quote uh, the person yeah. interviewing too. In an interview that you did, you were talking about the Great Recession in 2008. Yep. And he said, it turns out that all businesses still needed a way to store and share their files. What happened was during the recession, companies looked towards more efficient and more cost-effective and lighter weight solutions to solve their problems. Instead of signing up for the big multi-million dollar, very slow, very cumbersome types of software that they used to be spending money on, they actually want something that's more efficient. And there's this kind of great reset, it seems like, that you're looking at as part of this uh, creative destructive moment. So... A couple of years have passed, more than a decade. We're now facing possibly the greatest reset of our economy. What kinds of things are you prioritizing about the next phase of Box at this moment? Yeah, so I think um, probably like everybody, you know, we're taking stock of what do we feel like has changed in a sustained way about the environment and trying to decipher which things are kind of temporary because we're in a health pandemic from what things are sustained because there's enough social or, or economic or workplace change that now is going to get basically just reinforced into our daily lives that we're not going to go back. And we're trying to structure our business and our strategy in a way that sets us up for that environment. And I think there's probably more that gets changed than things that go back to normal. And it's the obvious stuff. I mean, it, uh, you know, things that I think we've all collectively been, been thinking about now for six months, which is, you know, the workplace itself 
is fundamentally shifting where not that necessarily that everybody is remote only, but probably people want more flexibility. They want to work from anywhere. Um, they want to be able to, to communicate and share across time zones and instantaneously in the cloud with digital experiences. So for any of us that have been in and around the Valley for a long time, this is like, yeah, so what? For 90% of the world that you know have office jobs and they go into to, you know, the, a Fortune 500 company, this is a brand new way of working that is completely changing the dynamics of the workplace for most, most companies right now. So we are trying to build a company and a platform that supports that way of working, that future of work. It so happens to be that we benefit from the fact that like for 15 years, this has been our strategy. So it's much more about amplifying our core as opposed to us having to do any dramatic pivot. And that's what we're doing. But again, if you're a consumer company, then you obviously you're, you're taking stock of the situation and saying, okay, what's changed about how society functions in this new digital world that we're in? And, and that's going to create a thousand new opportunities, just as the way that work is changing is going to create another thousand opportunities for new startups to, uh, to begin to emerge. So I think this is unquestionably an incredibly challenging time for businesses of all sizes, like other than Amazon. So like, you know, Amazon's fine, but like for everybody else, like it's like, you know, real hard work. But Amidst that uh, set of challenges, we will see great new companies uh, start to emerge and, and great new ideas that get created. And as you look at founders that are starting their companies now, there's a lot of talk about, you know, this is the best time to start a company because there are so many problems to solve. What kind of advice and guidance do you have for these startup founders that are just getting started coming into this world of COVID and moving into that post-COVID world, what things should they be keeping in mind? So the things I would point to are probably the ones that I think are relatively timeless in the startup world. And they're just, they're, you just have to like change the, the Mad Lib to things that are relevant to this sort of COVID environment. But when I think about startups and we did this unknowingly because I just didn't study the startup space in high school or college, like oh, I only studied the things that, that I was doing. But looking back over the past 15 years, I think the lessons of the best ideas and the best bets, while they're all in different categories and all different types of founding stories, they generally all have a similar orientation toward, are you riding just a freaking massive tailwind or tailwinds? So if you just think about all of the great innovations that happened from like 08 to 2012, it was most likely mobile that caused this tectonic shift in a market that then caused new startups to need to emerge to solve those problems. So are you riding some underlying tectonic shift that is a tailwind that is much bigger than yourself. And all you have to do is, is basically ride that wave with something that people are going to need as that wave continues to sort of play out. So what are your tailwinds? Are they really strong? Are you pushing on those tailwinds? Or are they happening beneath you? And you can just ride them out you know, fully. To me, that's usually like factor number one. I mean, besides all the stuff of, you know, you have to have a great team and, and all that, like we already know that part, but like, are you riding massive tailwinds? Are you doing something that is inherently disruptive in the true Clayton Christensen sense, not sort of how it's been mistaken over the past couple of years, but is it literally something that is a, an incumbent could just build a feature and then turn on? Or is it something that is truly a disruptive capability where the incumbents aren't going to be able to match you because it's not attractive to their business model or they don't have the resources or the, the approach that you're going to take? And that's something that's fundamental as opposed to they can just kind of go build it with a feature. And unfortunately, I do see a lot of startups that confuse sort of innovation with disruption. And there's a lot of things that are innovative, which are fantastic, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to sustain that innovation relative to the competitive landscape. 
uh, versus things that are actually disruptive where there's just no chance that the incumbent in your market is going to be able to copy you or follow you because, because they don't have a business model that supports that. And so being really thoughtful about why is this thing disruptive? I mean, I think a great example is that follows these types of trends is if you look at like Robinhood, you just, if you are going after a company that makes billions of dollars of revenue or profit a year because of fees for trading, and you say that's now no cost, you can't have anybody copy you. Now, eventually the market changed because it was such a dramatic uh, competitive dynamic that they created, but you want to be in the one driving that ultimately from a disruption standpoint. So tailwinds, disruption, and then I think focus, uh, focus is everything. I think doing things that really, really are hyper-focused, ideally, and this is to kind of steal from Paul Graham, or ideally are a wedge into a market that lets people kind of get started really easily. And then you expand from there over time. Uh, usually that's better. If I, if I look at our box story, most people thought that we were a feature of like, you know, email, like why can't you just do file attachments or why can't you do a thumb drive or, you know, this will just get built into the phone or something. And all those things were completely true, but what people missed was how important things like corporate data security were going to be and workflow was going to be. And so there was enough innovation you could do after you had that really, really simple way to get started that let people, you know, get drawn into the product um, that we could then expand on. So that would be maybe the things I would look at. And then again, just apply those principles to the current environment that we're in and just make sure that you're not working against tailwinds, that you're not doing something that can be easily copied and that you have something where really you're breaking in through a wedge in the market. So that was awesome. That was great. I think now we can all go and build boxes all over. All over. <laughs> Please don't use these against me. So, um, that's, that's my only uh, request is don't use my advice against me. The, that was so solid, Aaron. Thank you so much for recapping your observations and because a lot of us see you as an oracle. So here's the oracle speaking. Okay, let's oh, let's definitely not go that far. Okay. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so we've been speaking with Aaron Levy, the co-founder and CEO of Zizap. Dot com. Uh, you can learn about Zizap by going to archive.org and you might find it somewhere there. And later he created a nice little business called Box. Aaron, really was a lot of fun speaking to you. Thank you so much for sharing the context around your first pitch and congratulations on what you've done since. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to First Pitches. For show notes and more, visit our website, firstpitches.com, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. First Pitches is produced and edited by Hong Pham. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to rate our show and leave us a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. Berkland is the recognized leader in outsourced CFO, tax, and accounting services for startups at the emerging and growth stages. As a sponsor of First Pitches, Berkland would like to offer listeners a free finance consultation. Berkland also offers important tools on its website, a financial controls matrix, finance 101 for startups, contingency toolkits, tax and marketing calculators, and other critical resources for scaling a company. Visit berklandassociates.com slash hustle. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, 
e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join over 21,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash first pitches.